Hello and welcome to Ideas at the House, your weekly podcast of all the talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby. Indigenous writer Melissa Lukashenko has been writing poetry, essays and novels for decades. Her work has been nominated for pretty much every Australian literary prize there is, and she's won a fair few too, including, most recently, the Miles Franklin Award for her novel Too Much Lip. In the studio today, she's speaking with Benjamin Law. Do awards mean something to you? It means a rainforest block outside Kyogle. <laughs> Tell me more about that. That's where money's going? That money's gone. <laughs> <laughs> was it something that was in your dreams as an author to win an award pres- as prestigious as the Miles Franklin? Dreams, probably fantasies is a better word. Fantasies. It was sort of something I thought I had allowed for the possibility of, but when it happened, I realised that I really hadn't. So, oh my God. It felt completely surreal. It makes me think that there's something important there in an author like you winning it because for a long time, the Miles Franklin was very much synonymous with white Anglo male writers. It wasn't an award that was particularly renowned for embracing Mm -hmm. all of Australia's diversity. And now with you winning it, with someone like Alexis Wright having won it, are we starting to see the award itself change in its concept of what Australian writing is? Well, I hope so. Although, having said that, Thea Astley did win three times as a Queensland woman, but it was very heavily dominated by men in the 2000s. And I think, you know, the Stella Prize needs to be credited for pushing the agenda there and for shaking things up. So thank you, Miles Franklin, and thank you, Stella. (laughs) Now, let's talk about the writing itself. I mean, you cross between fiction and non-fiction. You won the Miles Franklin for your latest novel, uh, Too Much Lip. But it strikes me that a lot of your work crosses with your lived experience and also family history. So let's dive into that a little. You were born in Brisbane in 1967, correct? correct. On Turrbal and Yuggera land. And you were the seventh and youngest child of the family, the only daughter. So this is a big clan. You're the little one and the Mm. only girl. What was it like being the youngest and the only girl of such a big clan? Well, I always say they could stop when they got me, you know. They they finally got there. That was really the decision. (laughs) What we've always been waiting for has now arrived. Were you treated differently to your brothers? Yes, I was never taught to fix crappy broken down cars and I've never forgiven my family for that. And what were your earliest (laughs) memories of childhood? Oh, God, running around the bush. We had three acres of, uh, not market garden, because we didn't sell the produce, but we lived off what we grew, essentially. what did you grow? Mm, What didn't we grow? Corn, beans, tomato, mangoes, bananas, pawpaw, sweet potato, you name it, chickens. At one stage, there was a pig down the back. (laughs) So it was... Very much a semi-rural childhood in southern Brisbane. In some ways, it sounds almost like an idyllic childhood. Mm. Was it a happy childhood? I actually don't know if that's a meaningful question Mm. uh, because memory is such a strange beast. Mm. Uh, The scientists tell us that memory is not something that's fixed and accessible in the brain. It's it's something that's made anew uh, again and again. Uh, I had happy times, I had unhappy times. Mm. It was a very patriarchal family, I'll say that. You have written before about this where Mm. you said that it was a family and a microculture that just thought men exercising power was very normal Mm. and really okay. And you went on to write where acts of fairly extreme patriarchal violence and silencing were just something that you just took and survived and got around. So what Mm. are we talking about there and how did that manifest? 
because I was the youngest and a girl, I got off very lightly. But my brothers in particular, my older brothers, were uh, treated very savagely within the family. Both my two oldest brothers left home at 15 to escape uh, my father, essentially. Um, mm. And did you have an understanding or a vocabulary for that kind of dynamic that you saw at the time? Or was that kind of par for the course for that time and era and area? I think it's par for the course in working class and underclass Australia in some ways that men's power is not questioned. There's Aboriginal perspectives on that that certainly do challenge it because Mm. um, traditionally Aboriginal women have and exercise power and that still remains. But I grew up in an assimilated family so my experience was one of a patriarchal working class family where uh, men's word was law and women's internalised misogyny accepted that and went along with it, which meant that it was a very stable childhood Mm. for me, not for my brothers, but for me. You've been a professional and published writer for a couple of decades now. Mm. Uh, What were your earliest memories of reading? What kind of stories were you inhaling when you were growing up? Uh, All of the um, Anglo-centric stuff that was around in the 60s and 70s. But my main memory of reading as a young child was in grade three at Rochdale Primary School. And there was a book in the school library called Misty of Shinko Tea, which is about yay thick. And I borrowed it from the library in uh, grade three and I took it back the next day and the librarian said, oh, that's a big book for a little girl like you. Did you read it? And yes. I said, what did you think of it? And I parroted what I'd read on the back blurb, which is all that I had read. <laughs> she was really impressed. So I, I learned you could lie about literature and get away with it from a very early age. <laughs> That's a dangerous lesson. I'm going to ask a strange question, but I swear it has a point. But did you ever read mysteries? As a teenager, I read Agatha Christie a oh. lot. Very, And it, I still am an Agatha Christie fan. I love a good British murder mystery. Nothing gets the blood racing more than seeing pommies kill each other on the page. The reason I ask that, because it, it strikes me as I read about your life, that there were various elements of your life that kind of were hmm? mysteries and oh, yeah. held back from you. What were the mysteries at the core of your family? Where do you start? Um, well, as I say, I grew up in an assimilated family and... Uh, I knew that my father's family was Russian, except it turns out that they were actually Ukrainian. And then at different points, they were white Russians. And then I find out that they were communists. And my father, I knew my father's name growing up as Wally Lucas. When I was in my very early 20s, I discovered his name was Vladimir Lukashenko. How did you find that out? (laughs) Just in conversation. What do you mean? Like just casual conversation? Basically, yeah. It wasn't some big revelation. From him or from other people? I really don't remember. I think the Russian relos must have been visiting and it came out. And was that discombobulating or was it just also a casual kind of absorbing of that information too? I think it was just a confirmation of my lifelong feeling that um, I'm only ever getting part of the story. (laughs) When you talk about only getting part of the story, when you talk Mm. about growing up in an assimilated family, Mm. we're talking about so assimilated that you weren't aware of your Mm. Aboriginal heritage for a significant part of growing up. Mm. So how did that come up? How did you discover that? Well, yeah, mum protected us in the official assimilation era by, you know, my brothers all had olive skin and curly hair and uh, I was often asked as a child where I was from and I would tell them I'm, you know, Russian descent and that would satisfy most people's curiosity who noticed that I was a bit dark. And then I... uh, 
I went into my mother's room one day. My mum and dad had separate bedrooms almost my entire life. Mum booted him out when I was born. I think she'd had enough. And there was a photo of a very black woman on the dresser. And I said, oh, who's that? Mum said, that's my grandmother. And I went, oh, that's why we've all got olive skin and dark curly hair. Right? It just hadn't come up prior. And I only realised recently I had been questioning who I was in the world and that was mum's way of telling me I was Aboriginal, of beginning that conversation. And how old were you when that conversation started? I think I was 14. Okay. And what had happened was I had started doing karate and one of the older guys at karate uh, who himself turned out to be Aboriginal later on had asked me, you know, he would have used the term part Aboriginal and I said, I don't know, I don't think so. And he said, oh, you need to go and talk to your family because he'd picked it, you know, you often hear stories about people who are picked as gay and beaten up for being gay before they themselves realise that they were gay. And in my case, I was picked as being Aboriginal, but um, didn't know it. And to what extent was the absence of that conversation between your mum and your siblings about personal safety? Well, we could have been taken away. And my oldest brother, who's the blackest looking of us, he says that mum definitely moved house with him a lot on the run, kept moving in Brisbane, in suburban Brisbane, to avoid the authorities. And after you discovered your Aboriginality, how Mm. did that change the way you saw yourself and and saw your family? It didn't change it dramatically until I actually learnt what Aboriginality meant. And I was in my late teens, pushing 20 at that stage. And uh, I was was living in Eagleby in a um, kind of working class and Aboriginal demographic, but... It wasn't anything remarkable in Eagleby, you know, to be Aboriginal. You were one of the 20 or 30% of people around who were. So it was, I was introduced to culture in a meaningful way when I was in around about 20 and taken in by elders of the Yugambeh people and they began my education, which continues to this day. Mm. Now, before we get into that education, let's take a step back because karate has been raised a Mm. couple of times. And you have mentioned, I think, before that you had more connection to karate before you developed your connection to your Aboriginality. Mm. So why karate? How did you find karate and what did it give you? I think I was in about grade nine at school and I had started to act out and to start to throw punches around and... Uh, a friend of the family suggested to mum that she get me into martial arts before I got into serious trouble, and thank God she did. And so what did it give you, a way to focus your anger? Anger that I didn't know I had, Mm -hmm. um, a sense of peril that I didn't know I... that I didn't know was unusual. You know, when I look back, the world was a very perilous-seeming place to me as a teenager. Mm. How so? Physically, uh, emotionally, psychologically, I felt quite alone, I guess. And karate gave me a place to belong. But yeah, I was Queensland karate champion for my category. I can't remember if it was four times or five times. And I came third in the Australian titles twice. So people should watch out for you if they encounter you in a dark alley? Um, If they're not nice people, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's karate. Let's talk about writing. Mm. I mean, it sounds like you really loved reading from a young age. But at what point did you pivot to writing and and why? I can't imagine it's financial security. No, although I am finally making a living uh, by some miracle. 
Yeah, I, was, I loved reading, always loved reading, still love reading. And people ask me, you know, did you dream of being a, a writer? And I, I didn't really. Uh, if I dreamed of anything, it was of being able to do nothing but read rather mm. than write. But I turned to fiction because the experience of being young and Aboriginal in Australia, I didn't see anywhere around me. You know, if you look at TV, movies, the public discourse today, there's lots and lots of Aboriginal content. In 1997, when I put out Steam Pigs, that wasn't the case, you know. The, uh, the Mabo decision hadn't yet been made. Uh, there'd been the 88 protests, but the experience, particularly of urban Aboriginal people, was just almost entirely absent mm. from public discourse. So I wanted to say, you know, we exist. There's a, a conversation here to be had that hasn't, it isn't being had. Were you expecting to find the success that you did with Steam Pigs? Because this was your debut novel mm. and it won the Dobby Prize for Australian Women's Fiction and was shortlisted in the New South Wales Premier's Award. So that success with your first published work, did mm. you see that coming? I not only didn't see it coming because I didn't understand anything about publishing at all. I had no concept of what it meant to win prizes. I had no understanding of the significance of it. And I was so determined that I wouldn't be shaped by, you know, non-Aboriginal world that I paid it very little attention at the time. But around the same time, mm. you're also publishing a number of academic articles in the 90s. You're co-founding Sisters Inside around mm. this period. So this is a non-profit prison abolitionist group that campaigns for the rights of female prisoners. Mm. What spurred on that focus in your work that was running parallel to you writing novels? Yeah, Sisters Inside is a human rights organisation and we work with women, non-binary people and men and their families. I was working as a bureaucrat in Queensland Health and a, a mate said, oh, there's a, a small group of women meeting in West End to talk about prisoners. And uh, I'm not even sure if she told me it was women prisoners, but because my oldest brother spent decades in jail after leaving the family, or having been forced away from the family, more accurately, prison was something I was keenly interested in. So I went along and, um, yeah, 25 years later, Sisters Inside is still going strong. 25 years later, still going strong, which is terrific, but still also very necessary. Yeah, increasingly necessary. There's the uh, rate of incarceration of all women, and especially Aboriginal women, is rising. As, you know, neoliberalism has its inevitable result. You know, you strip money away from public assets like housing and the social welfare safety net, and what happens is people fall through the cracks and into a very profitable prison industry. Mm. In 2000, you met Angela Davis, mm. uh, the black American political activist, academic writer. Who was Auntie Angela. Yeah, and <laughs> she's famous for you know being one of the central figures in the Black Panther Party during the civil rights movement. Mm. You've shared the stage and space with her, had conversations. Did yep. you talk about prison abolition and prison reform with her? Yeah, that's a central concern of Angela's, and she comes out each year to the Sisters Inside Conference and uh, usually spends time on Minjerubar, Stradbrook Island, when she's in Queensland, along with Deb Kilroy. Like Deb Kilroy is the, the driving force behind Sisters Inside, and without Deb, the organisation wouldn't be nearly as effective and may mm. not even exist. But Angela is one of those struts that helps the organisation keep a global focus, and there's also Professor Kim Tate, who's a uh, Canadian senator and a prison abolitionist in 
Canada and yeah, it helps us to understand that we're not alone, that this is a global movement to expose the corruption of the prison industry for what it is, which is a giant rod on the taxpayer. So it's about exchanging knowledge, finding parallels in conversations that are going on in Australia and other countries. Mm. It also makes me think when we're talking about Angela Davis as a black American writer, you talked about that you'd actually held yourself back from engaging with black American work. Um, you'd read some James Baldwin, but you'd mm. held off from mm. people like Toni Morrison and I guess by extension people like mm. Angela Davis. Tell me about where that reluctance came from and what changed later in life. I remember the Murray fellow I was at uni with, um, Dr Chris Matthews, who's now a renowned mathematics educator at uni, saying, you know, we hear so much about black Americans, but we don't hear the Native American voice. And uh, that really stuck with me, and I think it's true. Uh, I think it probably influenced me a little bit too much, though, in that I... You wanted to focus on Indigenous writing, Indigenous yeah. writing here and yeah. abroad. we're in Australia, and it's easy to externalise the buffoonery and externalise the racism, externalise all the, the war on the poor, uh, let's bring it back to here. What's going on in your yeah. own house. Yeah. Mm. So. But then later when you do discover black American writing or engage with it more meaningfully, mm. uh, what, what does it give you? Immense richness. Uh, in the case of Toni Morrison's work a, and a profound gratitude for for such beautiful writing and yeah, I'm just, I'm still in awe. I still haven't recovered from reading Beloved, you know, over a decade ago. It's just like a punch to the heart. Mm. One of your central preoccupations and themes that you return to in your work is class. Mm. In your own life, you're the only person in your family to have gone to university um, because there was a lack of money for your brothers to even finish year 12. Is that right? Uh, my youngest brother finished year 12, mm. and I had a Russian aunt who went to university, so in my immediate family, I'm the first one, but the Russians had more access to education than we did. Working as a novelist in Australia is pretty hard. There are all those stats that say, you know, published novelists out there are earning, on average, $12,000 a year from their work, and that's mm. actually the lucky ones. You had published five acclaimed books mm -hmm. by the time you found yourself facing poverty again in 2007. Can you tell me about that period and what that reflects about working as an artist in this country? Yeah, I uh, got divorced in 2007, I think it was, and I'm very debt phobic. And so I chose to take um, the money that came out of my divorce settlement and buy possibly the cheapest house in southeast Queensland near Woodridge. <laughs> But I was happy to do that, you know, because it meant I, I owned a house without a debt and I didn't mind living in Woodridge. It wasn't living in Mullumbimby by any stretch of the imagination, but it meant that I all I had to find was money for food and bills and petrol, those sorts of expenses. And I figured I could do that while I helped my daughter negotiate adolescence, which was no easy road for either of us. Mm. Um, you know, 10 years later, she's doing really well she's working she's happy we've gotten through the the horror of adolescence and um yeah i think what having to live in logan on a on a shoestring um says about being an artist is um that there's there's just not a lot of money in writing in australia there's uh 
not the kind of writing I was interested in doing. You know, I've I've said before, and it's it's actually true that I would be a millionaire if I was prepared to sell out Aboriginal culture in the way that Hollywood would like. You know, I could write a story in a fortnight that would be a bestseller. You know, that regurgitates myths about Aboriginal spirituality and the dreaming and all this kind of crap and, you know, wrap that around a, a heterosexual mainstream romance and Bob's your uncle, I'd have a lot of money in the bank. But I'm not about to do that. I think what living in Woodridge on a shoestring also says is about what single parenthood is like in Australia. Um, for many, many women, I know a lot of women who are, who are just basically trying to survive from day to day, put one foot in front of the other. And again, this is neoliberalism. This is the attack on the welfare state safety net, um, which we've seen now for 30-odd years. And they hate the state. They don't want state intervention to make people's lives better. They don't understand what it is to be poor. They have no concept of what it is to be poor, literally. And so they think that the state can be dispensed with. You know, I think that's profoundly dangerous because uh, you know what it's like to be homeless in a very small way, Ben. You've seen the results, and um, it's no way to run a society. Mm. You know, we can do better. I mean, uh, what what needs to happen there? Because I know that, um, having read a Guardian piece of yours, that you're a pacifist, you're a social democrat, you want to avoid bloodshed. Can revolution happen yes. in non-violent ways? Are you optimistic also that it's coming? I think I am, yeah, because I, I just don't see that people will continue to be squashed down and have their basic human rights denied forever. Obviously, xenophobia can be used, you know, the the image of the migrant or the image of the refugee can be used as the convenient enemy um, to explain, you know, why some Australians are suffering. But uh, I don't know that people are stupid enough to be tricked in that way for very long. And uh, I am optimistic that change will come and I'm hopeful that it will be bloodless. Mm. I want to talk about your latest novel, Too Much Lip, mm. which won this year's Miles Franklin Award. Now, at some point you discovered your great-grandmother, Christina Copson, an Aboriginal woman, had shot a man. Yes. What was that discovery and how did you know there was a story there to be told? Yeah, I'd been aware for a few years that there'd been a shooting there's an old school uh, yearbook from Walvi, which is the tiny town where it happened, which talks about a gin running into town screaming, I shot him, I shot him. <laughs> and mum had given me the bare bones of the story that she'd shot a man. But I discovered uh, on Trove, uh, I don't know, two, three, four years ago, the detail of the story where Christina had been stalked and harassed by a local man and uh, had found herself alone in the bush one day and he was fencing there. She was out shooting pigeons to eat. And, uh, yeah, he attacked her and she fought back and uh, she had her pigeon shooting rifle and eventually she got the rifle back off him and uh, from a distance of maybe 20 yards, something like that, she shot him. And the newspaper report says in the leg, but I think that's a euphemism. I think she <laughs> shot him in the groin. <laughs> And so that is already a compelling story. What are the first steps of taking that story and turning into a much, much bigger tale? Yeah, I, I think I was uh, informed by the spirit of the story than the detail, <laughs> because in Too Much Lip, the, uh, 
the grandmotherly figure, who I think is actually the great grandmother in the story, she uh, she's fleeing. She doesn't have a rifle. What she has is a very pregnant belly, and she's on the run uh, to safety while the men on horses chase her. So yeah, great granny's defiance and spirit uh, infused the book and allowed my character, Granny Ava, to swim a cold river in winter and uh, reach the island, which was the sanctuary that saved her and, by extension, saved the family. The central character in Too Much Lip is also a bisexual Aboriginal woman. Mm. Uh, Why was that important, to have that character at the centre driving the story? Mm. I wanted a spirit of defiance in this book because I, uh, on the one hand, I saw the women of Sisters Inside, both the workers and the um, criminalised women, and and sometimes those are the same because a lot of criminalised women now work at Sisters Inside. They're just their spirit of, like, you know, we give no fucks and we're not going to be told how the world is when we know it's something else altogether. So, you know, don't try and pull the wool over our eyes, mate. That spirit, which is, it's hilarious and it's, it's uplifting and it just gives you this big power surge whenever you're around it. I saw that and then I saw the direct opposite, this kind of depressive malaise of people sinking down and thinking that they had no power. And of course, once you think that you have no power, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, the biggest trick that was ever played on a population was convincing us that we don't have the power to make change. We do. So I wanted to have a character who was... Uh, strong but marginal, and so obviously an Aboriginal bisexual woman on the run from the law was a pretty good choice, as well as reasonably close to my own experience. You've said before that the success of Mullumbimby, which was your novel prior to Too Much Lip, made you a bit suspicious. And it strikes me that as your career has progressed, so has your readership and the level of accolades that your books get. Um, But at the same time, you were worried and anxious about this idea of respectability and suspicious of a book that one prizes, something that everyone loved. And Mullumbimby was definitely that novel that got a lot of acclaim. Is it the conflation between respectability and palatability? Oh, yeah, that very much you? so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, being the model minority uh, as an expression that you would know. The good Aboriginal person, the good minority. That... Well, someone who's telling a story that's, um, you know, it, it's transgressive enough to be interesting but not transgressive enough to actually change anything. That's what I was worried that I might have been doing. Mm. Uh, and so in this book, I thought, well, I will just try and piss everybody off. <laughs> and, you know, and of course, what, and in what the process, happens? You get even more accolades. You win the Miles Franklin Award. What, and what, sell far more books than I've ever <laughs> sold before. So, you know, I don't know. What does that tell you? Does that make you perhaps reestablish a faith in readers and publishers to come to a story that is a bit of a middle finger <laughs> raised? In a small way, yeah. Um, I was thinking about this during the week and my sales for this book have been a lot higher because of the Miles Franklin mostly. And I know that the Miles Franklin judges aren't representative of you know, the, the great Australian public, uh, but when I see myself and Ellen Van Nieven and Nayuka Gori and a host of other Aboriginal writers out there and Torres Strait Islander writers having our voices heard, I feel like I'm part of a wave of change. 
And, you know, we are discussing treaty in Australia. Or when I say we, Aboriginal people have been discussing treaty for almost forever. But now the conversation is being had by governments as well. And for all the flaws and failings of that process in Victoria, for example, where the Jabwarong trees are under threat, it still remains the case that treaty is being discussed. And, you know, that that's a significant step forward. And so I think... Uh, things aren't changing very fast and they're not changing for people in custody and in jail very much at all. But in the, the political conversation, uh, things are being shaken. Mm. Yeah. You said that you were part of a wave. I think a lot of writers, your colleagues, would see you as leading <laughs> that wave. Surfing it, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> What would it have meant to a younger Melissa Lukashenko who was only reading really Anglo-centred books growing up? What would it have meant to her to have read someone like a Melissa Lukashenko, an Ali Kobiekamin, someone like Nayuka Gora, someone like Ellen Van Nieven? What would that have changed for you? Mm, I think it would have got me thinking about injustice and inequality in a different way much earlier, and I think that would have been a a good thing. It would have given me permission to speak more loudly. Although I did come close to knocking out a couple of teachers at high school, so maybe, who knows? Maybe that <laughs> that instinct was there all along. I think perhaps it was. <laughs> Melissa Lukashenko, thank you so much. Cheers. <laughs> Melissa Lukashenko was at the Opera House for Antidote for a fascinating talk about nationalism and patriotism alongside former guests of this podcast, Fintan O'Toole and Deborah Lipstadt. There's a link to a video of the talk in the show notes. If you enjoy Ideas at the House, please leave us a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts. This helps bring new audiences to the program. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.